0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.
1: To err is human. To forgive, divine. That quote is from a poem published by Enlightenment-era writer Alexander Pope in 1711. More than 300 years later, forgiveness is still seen as an act of inspiration and admiration.
2: The family of a
0: Colorado teenager shot and killed by a classmate at school is asking people to forgive the killer.
2: A powerful moment of forgiveness in an Ionia County courtroom today as a Hudsonville woman faces the driver who caused the crash that killed her husband.
0: Before the judge sent him away, the family of the victim had an important message. They forgave him.
1: Those are all moments from TV news broadcasts. But in February, Zanetta Everhart had a different message. Her son was among the victims of the 2022 shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York.
2: The world says you have to forgive in order to move on. But I stand before you today to say that will never happen. Forgiveness to me puts this tragedy in the laps of the victims, and I nor my son will accept the responsibility of his terroristic act. This is his and his alone.
1: It is he who will need to ask for forgiveness. Today, we're talking about why we venerate forgiveness and why that way of thinking may do more harm than good. Our guest is author, philosopher, and professor, Maisha Cherry. Her latest book is Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do Better. In it, she argues that forgiveness doesn't always provide healing power, especially if it comes without tackling the root causes of wrongdoing. So what effect does forgiveness have? What does it mean to forgive? And how do we know when to forgive? Professor Cherry joins us after the break to discuss her new book and what she found. We also hear your stories about forgiveness. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
1: Let's get into the conversation and welcome Maisha Cherry. She's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. Professor Cherry, welcome to 1A.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So we heard those moments from broadcast journalists celebrating forgiveness. And in fact, it was a journalist's question. That inspired you to examine forgiveness and eventually write this book. Tell me more.
2: Yeah i I was recognizing or, or noticing what I kind of call a ritual that was happening. Um, kind of started with the death of Trayvon Martin, and during the press conferences with his parents, uh, reporters was asking the family members, "Can they find it in their hearts to forgive?" And You would think that that's just a one off. Uh, reporter feels inspired to write a good story, but then after Trayvon Martin, there was other deaths uh, due to state violence. And another press conference, and another reporter asking, "Can you find it in your heart to forgive this individual?" And there was something about that—that question—that kind of bothered me. And I was trying to figure out why was I bothered by what seemed like a relevant question, a powerful, a powerful act. And so, as any philosopher would do, we dig deep, <laughs> begin to ask ask fundamental questions, and then you kind of fast forward to 2016. Uh, the Dylan Roof tragedy, and you have individuals in court not being asked if they will forgive, but proclaiming and announcing uh, their forgiveness. And you have reporters just inspired by the story, running stories about it. And there was something about those stories and those headlines where it seemed like forgiveness was being praised in ways that was obscuring the wrongdoing that was happening. And so I really wanted to think about what was it about forgiveness that we found so relevant and so powerful what were some of the mistakes that we were making when we was presenting it immediately after a particular wrongdoing? What was our expectations? Um, and I kind of began to think that we were conceiving it as something that was magical, that if a victim just forgives, then all our racial problems will go away. Mm-hmm. And all we had to do is mention forgiveness and, and all will be well. And so I began to kind of tap in, in into what do we think forgiveness is? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how can we change our thinking about forgiveness so that we can also change our behavior? What was your working definition of forgiveness for the book? Well, let me just say, I grew up thinking that forgiveness was a letting go of anger. Mm. And I grew up thinking that you forgive um, with the aim of reconciling with the offender. So that's, that's the kind of model that I, that I grew up in. And in the book, I call it the narrow, kind of, the narrow view. Not the wrong view, but it's just a narrow way of thinking. And I think as I begin to kind of do research and hear other people's reports about forgiveness, I noticed that they were different from each other. And as opposed to saying that there was only one account and everybody else was wrong about their forgiveness, it kind of broadened my thinking about what forgiveness is. And so in the book, I kind of describe forgiveness as, listen, it involves a set of moral practices and it can aim towards a variety of reparative aims. So let me be a little bit more precise about that. So forgiveness could involve the letting go of certain kinds of emotions like anger but it could also involve letting go certain attitudes, such as hatred. Or it can also involve a change in behavior. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we ought to always aim for reconciliation. Sometimes it's not wise to, reco- to reconcile yourself with the wrong door. And so um, you could strive for relief for yourself. Or you could strive for release for the offender. And so there's a variety of reparative, of reparative aims and a variety of moral practices that one can engage in. And I think this is important because I think when we begin to look at forgiveness as one thing, then we have a tendency to think that a person hasn't forgiven. And we have a tendency to put pressure on them to do the thing that we want them to do. So there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of coercion, a lot of disrespect as far as what what victims can do. Um, But the definition is not just narrow. I think our expectations are narrow. And who we think, has to do the work of repair is also mm. narrow. So it's not just the victims. And I, and I love that. I'm, I'm so glad that you, you, you all uh, highlighted that Buffalo example because I think she's right on it. Um, we have a tendency to think that forgiveness is only the work of the victim. And in order for true forgiveness to to happen, if it can be reached, is going to take much more work than just a victim alone. It's going to take the wrongdoers, it's going to take the community. Um, And so I want us to broaden our thinking about what forgiveness is, what it can do, but also recognizing its limits and what we need to do to make sure repair happens as individuals.
1: There's something you said earlier about your observation of journalists' interactions with victims of crimes and you refer to it as a ritual you observe this ritual occurring and what are you what have you taken away about the comfort we find in in this this sort of ritual of forgiveness that we have built where a happens then b happens then c happens yeah. the end yeah. and and who is that supposed to comfort
2: yeah yeah so i call this ritual the hurry and bury ritual because typically we have a tendency to kind of rush forgiveness or want forgiveness to hurry up and happen. And I call it the bury aspect because in doing so, we kind of bury or obscure the wrongdoing. Um, I, I think this is rooted in a desire. First of all, as human beings, we love happy endings. I hate to read a novel. And it doesn't turn out the way I <laughs> want <laughs> it to turn out. I'm like, I invested a whole week in this. And this story doesn't end the way I want it to end. That's why I hate horror flicks. Uh... I like Happy endings and i I think that 's that's kind of a human response. Um, we love Hollywood because of that, um, and so I think embedded in this this ritual is a desire to get to to a happy ending and 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 i 'm not, not suggesting that, that that desire is not apt or fitting or worthwhile but here 's the thing: life is messy mm. <laughs> wrongdoing has an afterlife, and I think we need to be patient. <laughs> when it comes to healing and repairing our, our world and make sure that we don't rush to happy ending at the price of contributing to more wrongdoing in, in, in the world.
1: At the same time, when I think about the ways in which I've been taught about forgiveness, um, two things stand out to me. One, and you mentioned this, this earlier, is, is that forgiveness is supposed to act as a relief from anger. Mm-hmm. Um, which has not been my experience, but, <laughs> but I was told it was supposed to be. Um, but, but also that there is something empowering about the act of forgiveness. What have you learned about, first, the, the anger piece?
2: Yeah. That? So in my previous book, it's called The Case for Rage. I make a case for anger and I make a case for anger um, because contrary to popular belief, I don't think that all anger is bad. Um, that, it, that it has a role to play in our, in our moral and our moral lives, it can be productive, it can be motivational, um, but it also can take a stand against injustice and, and, and wrongdoing and so um, i don 't have a problem with with, with, with anger per se um, but I think I think that definition or thinking that forgiveness is a letting go I mean it kind of comes from a fear of Of anger, and we can go in so many directions because I think that fear of anger, in some ways, is sincere, but a lot of it is very racialized. It's also very, 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 very gendered. Um, But we think that, particularly, emotions that don't necessarily feel good, such as anger, we think that the best thing that we ought to do as human beings is try to get rid of that thing that don't feel good. Um, But I think (laughs) discomfort is good for us. You know, I I exercise. And uh, I know I have a, I had a good workout when I when when, when I'm sore, <laughs> <laughs> All right. because the muscles are rebuilding, and and so there's there's a there's a process of growth that happens through through the pain, but human beings we don't we don't like pain we don't like discomfort. And so is this resistance to anger for those, for, those, for, those particular, for those particular reasons. And so I realize even in my personal life, I mean, in, in the book, as much as philosophers, we don't like talking about our personal lives. Mm-hmm. We like to talk about theory and principles. In my own life, I get kind of personal about my own experience with forgiveness. And, and just to get a little personal here, um, and this is connected to the anger point that I want to make, I thought that I had forgiven my stepfather years ago. And my sister brings him up after about 10 years and immediately when she brings him up, like, all this anger began to arise in, in, in my body. Like, I feel it in my body. And I had a moment where I'm like, mm, I thought we let this go. And I thought about it for a moment, and I began to kind of think about all the things I've been thinking about from an intellectual perspective. Yeah. And I was like, no, I, I have forgiven. My anger. My, my forgiveness just doesn't look like my sister. So for my sister, she has letting go of anger. And maybe she doesn't experience it anymore. My forgiveness just looked different. Um, And so I want to I want to suggest that anger can be compatible with forgiveness. And I know that I have forgiven my stepfather because the more practice of anger is not my practice. What I have done is let go of the hatred that I have towards him. And I had immediately reorientated my behavior towards him. So I didn't strive that he would, you know, end up dead somewhere or anything like that. Um, I still extended goodwill towards him. Um, but I did it not for reconciliation, but I did it for, for repair and for the memory of my mother. Long story, read the book if you want to get more 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 details yeah. on that. But even from my own experience, I realized I can forgive and still hold on, hold on to anger. And depending on the gravity of the situation, depending on the wrongdoing, you may need that anger to remain out of respect, for the atrocity and the gravity of wrongdoing, and also perhaps out of respect for the wrong door, mm-hmm. right? There's something about anger that just constantly reminds, particularly if we committed wrong, is that, hey, what I did was no light thing. What I did, the harm of it is not going to disappear. Um, and so I shouldn't think that uh, the anger is going to disappear. And so it's, it's, it's just out of respect for the wrong door, out of respect for the wrongdoing, out of respect for the victim, that perhaps sometimes the anger remains or it may, come, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. That's a good thing. We need to sit with that discomfort and thing called anger. We're discussing forgiveness, and we'll be back with more after
1: this short break. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Let's get back to our discussion about forgiveness with this message we got from Marsha in North Carolina. In the Jewish faith, we can only ask forgiveness if we directly go to the person or persons we may have harmed. We must ask for forgiveness and look at changing our behavior for the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Only then can we go to God and ask for forgiveness. So the responsibility is clearly on us and making a change The Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah began on Friday, September 15th, and during the next 10 days ahead of Yom Kippur, Jews seek forgiveness for wrongs they've committed against God and others. And for its part, the Bible is full of messages on forgiveness. Uh, Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Matthew 6.14, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Professor Thierry, how does religion, even if you're not particularly religious, shape our understanding of forgiveness?
2: Well, let me just say this. So, so the book is not written from a, a Christian perspective. It's, it's, it's written from a, a philosophical perspective. And so it has a variety of, of inspirations and resources to, to, to rely on. I will say this. There's no doubt that I think the Christian view about forgiveness has influenced a lot of us. Um, it's also interesting that the Bible doesn't really tell us what forgiveness involves. It just tells us that we ought to do it. Now, because I'm a philosopher, I can't really say, hey, people ought to forgive because God said so, because I'm speaking to people ir- irregardless of their, their religious, religious beliefs. And so I, I wanted to kind of think about things outside of that kind of dogmatic uh, do- domain. But there's no doubt that I think Christianity has had a tremendous impact on how people kind of interpret and think forgiveness ought to go. I kind of suggest that it gives us kind of what I call kind of a hegemonic thinking about, about forgiveness. So much so that even if you're, if you're not a Christian or you're no longer a Christian, that Christian idea has, has influenced you. So as a result of that, people think, hey, we ought to always forgive or we ought to always, always do it. And I have a problem with the always language, mm. right, that is contextual, that it may be a situation where you decide to forgive um, because the uh, wrong door has offered an apology. And then there's another person who says, hey, their apology is insufficient. I just, I just don't, want, I don't want to do it. And I want to say that's, that's okay. I want to make room for both, both, of those, both of those things. But there's no doubt that the Christian tradition has created kind of a hegemonic thinking about forgiveness. And in some ways, I, I want to say, well, I got something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. more, more particularly about how we, how we interpret that in, in, in the world. And I want to kind of push back against our interpretations of that and get us to kind of open our minds a little bit more and, and think about it more in a broader a broader context and less dogmatically.
1: I was raised in that tradition and, and was told often, you have to practice forgiveness. And as a young person, I interpreted that as, I forgive you, and I forgive you, <laughs> and I forgive you. Yeah. I'm practicing forgiveness. Now that I'm a woman of a certain age, I've come to a different... <laughs> A different um, understanding of what practicing forgiveness means for me, and it's it, it works similarly to the way I think about grief, which is that it's not linear.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the
1: same way as you were talking about thinking about your stepfather and that anger comes up.
0: Yeah,
1: forgiveness is easy on some days yeah. around a certain wrong, and then a week from that day, mm-hmm. not not so much. what I'm hearing you say is that we we talk about forgiveness as if it is this fixed point in time. You forgive and all is well, when that's not how our emotions work. It's not how our grief works, because in some ways you may be grieving a relationship that is irreparably damaged because of a harm. How much of of what you've learned is about helping us think about this as not a linear practice? It's not like forgiven, point, point. Like, period, end of sentence, maybe it's more ellipses.
2: I mean, this, this goes back to, to our obsession with, with happy endings. Mm. And a lot of that is connected with our obsession as well as with stories and narratives, hence the reporters. And we have a kind of thinking, if you read novels, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a structure, right? Um, there's a way in which stories are developed, um, happens pretty quickly, ends with a, with, 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 with a happy, happy ending. Um, and in some way, novels are very linear, like Movies yeah. are quite linear. We get confused with the Christopher Nolans who try to mess up our way of conceiving of movies. It gets very complicated. Um, but we think progress is linear. We think stories are linear. We think eventually we will get to a happy endings. And I think when we're dealing in the aftermath of wrongdoing, that aftermath disrupts that whole thing, right? Because even pain is not, is not right. linear. Right. Right. And so, of course, our, our desire to, to, to address our pain, our, de- our, our efforts to move forward is also not going to be not going to be linear. And so I think we need to recognize that. I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to get readers to, to kind of kind of change their thinking about as much as I want them to rethink forgiveness. I want them to also rethink repair and rethink processes of, of repair and processes of, of, of forgiveness. It is indeed a process. And here's the thing. Just because I desire to forgive someone doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to eventually get there. I'm just aiming for it. I'm just deciding to engage in the process. But I may not succeed. And I want to say that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, The effort of doing whatever what one can to get reparative results will always be worth it, even if one doesn't forgive.
1: That takes me to a couple of messages we got. One from Liz who says, Surely only God the universe forgives or not. Our responsibility as victims is to come to terms with what happened and hope for redemption going forward for the guilty party. And Sarah in Pennsylvania emailed us saying, Forgiveness is for people who believe in an afterlife. Mm. And when you talk about the repair piece, this sort of radical repair that is necessary for for a more expansive practice of forgiveness. How do these ideas about um, what I'm reading is, is like justice yeah. <laughs> come into play?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that last comment. And it's interesting about, about forgiveness is for those who believe in an afterlife. I think forgiveness is for those who believe in an afterlife of wrongdoing that forgiveness can address what remains of the past and what remains of pain. But also withholding forgiveness also believes in the afterlife, that I may have to keep my forgiveness to myself um, so that the wrongdoer can change and we can move we can move forward. But let me just say something about, about, about radical repair. So for me, I think a lot of people think that we t- we're talking about processes, we're talking about getting to the happy endings, we're talking about linear kind of thinking. And we have a tendency to think that In order for us to get there, it only takes the victim forgiving and somehow magically forgiveness is going to do it. And and that kind of thinking, we kind of have this notion of what I call kind of thrifty repair. So thrifty (laughs) repairs, you got to get something done on your car. Um, Say you need to get the oil, the oil change or you can get the bumper Mm. fixed and you decide, well, both of those needs to get done. Let me do the cheaper option. Bumper. Okay, I'll take care of that. And then your car doesn't run, right? Because you chose to do it. so. That's thrifty repair. And then there's such thing as superficial repair, superficial repair where I'm gonna fix the bumper so I can look good, although the engine's gonna break down. And I think a lot of us conceive of repair going forward in those particular ways. We're gonna do the cheap thing, so it can happen real quickly. Are we going to do the superficial thing? We want the relationship or the nation to look good from the outside, but we don't really want to do the hard work of of getting at the root of the problem. And I think radical repair, which I'm trying to get people to kind of aim for, even without forgiveness, with or without forgiveness, radical repair, it requires collaborative work. So it's not just the victim, right? In order for repair to truly happen with or without the victim's forgiveness, we need the wrongdoer to strive to do better in our community. We need community members, individuals, families, friends to validate the victim, uh, to not coerce the victim, to not put pressure on the victim, to make sure that there is justice that is done in the world, right? Because the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, I miss, a lot of people talk about, hey, they were able to create a new democratic South Africa because people forgave. No, it's because they also had an amnesty hearing. It's also because they had a reparations committee. But they were striving for justice. They were striving for truth. And that kind of influence and contribute to victims forgiving. So I think I think justice has a role to play, um, but that also requires creativity, collaborative work, and us getting to the root of, of the problem.
1: We're going to head to a quick break here. We'll be back with more from you and our guest in just a moment. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash whatsyourwhy for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com.
1: We're talking to philosopher and professor Maisha Cherry about her new book, Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do Better. Let's go to this message we got from Jeanette, who emails us this quote they find helpful. I will remember and recover, not forgive and forget. And Andrew emailed, I have offered forgiveness to my sister who struggles with addiction and mental illness. I'm continually physically and emotionally abused by her. I've needed to create boundaries to protect my family from her destructive behavior. My forgiveness has opened me to endless hurt. I question my forgiveness that brought her back into my life daily. One of the things I'm really curious about is what you've observed about who is expected to forgive, who carries that responsibility in our society.
2: So we can think about the cases that we've talked about earlier, right? These are these are cases of of white violence. Uh, these are cases that are very much racialized, and so the victims in, in the cases that I mentioned were black. But also, one of the things that you'll recognize that a lot of them were the representative of the family members who were indeed women. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that these black women was asked this question. And I think we have an expectation uh, that my, my, minorities forgive wrongdoing. Um, and I think a lot of that is, is, is just pointing to a overburdening of of, of, of minorities, um, putting the pressure on them to do all the work um, that all of us should have a, have a helping hand in. And even, when, you know, go beyond the, the racialized cases, we think about, Cases of like gender cases in which a woman ought to always stand by her man no matter, no matter mm. what, he, what he does, right? That's a very gendered notion of, of, of forgiveness. And the flip side of it is that a, a man ought to like leave his wife if, if, if she was to do the same thing, if he's a person of dignity and respect, and if he's masculine. So I think, I think our expectations about who, who, can, who should forgive is very racialized and it's also also very, very gendered. And I, I think I think it was what's important to know. He's talk, we we're talking about, or what I'm trying to get readers to think about is how to do better. Oh. Is to change our expectations in that in that particular regard. I think if if forgiveness is a moral practice, that means that. Anyone who is moral should consider it, Um, and it shouldn't be gendered or or racialized in in, in that
1: that sense. We got this email from Marisol, who says, The idea that the victim needs to forgive when the perpetrator is not seeking it puts the burden on the wrong person. Releasing anger is all well and good, but I think forgiveness is something else. Twice in my life, after many years, I've had people go through great trouble to find me to apologize for something harmful they did. It was easy to forgive them, though what they did was pretty terrible, but they genuinely regretted what they had done. When people seek true forgiveness, it's about being accountable. How does accountability show up in this conversation?
2: Yeah, and, and a lot of accountability is often found in, in what we're called apologies. And I think I think apologies are good to make. <laughs> it's hard to offer up apology. Um, So I respect people when they recognize that they've done wrong to apologize. And apologies incorporate acknowledging the gravity of the situation. It involves recognizing that you messed up and it also involves kind of a striving to want to do to want to do better. I want to be very careful with thinking that apologies are the same thing as asking for forgiveness. I honestly think that when you come to an apology, don't ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. If the victim wants to forgive, then that's up to them, but apologies is bringing a gift. And to ask for forgiveness is to bring a gift and then ask for another gift back.
1: So that brings us to this email we got from Stephanie who says, I hate apologies. They do not fix anything and actually transfer the onus onto the victim because if you are wronged and do not accept someone's apology, you're then seen as the bad guy. Apologies give the wrongdoer a free pass to continue their behavior. If I am wronged, I expect the person to change their behavior, not utter a few meaningless syllables in order for me to allow them back into my life. What role does an apology play when we're talking about forgiveness?
2: Yeah. Ap- apologies are, are a gift that we, we give to the victim, right? Um, it's, a vic- it's, a, it's an opportunity to kind of validate the gravity of the situation. It's an opportunity to strive or at least proclaim that one is going to try to do better. That's it. There are sincere apologies. There's insincere apologies. Apologies can be made very humbly. But depending on the tone, they can also be made very coercively. So apologies within themselves are not always good and not always always bad. I, I wanna, I wanna caution um, that I you know, made the distinction between apologies and shouldn't be requests for forgiveness. They're not synonymous. And I, I actually think that once you apologize, you should not ask for forgiveness. At, at best, you should ask for hope for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 give the victim an apology and move on. If they want to forgive, then that's, that, that, that's up to them. I also think that apologies can provide a reason for the victim to forgive you, but it's not, it's not like the reason for them to forgive you. So it makes perfect sense that even after um, offering an apology, um, that a victim doesn't quote-unquote accept it or a a victim doesn't decide to to forgive. That's perfectly fine. It's not a a, a transaction in which I'm going to give you $50, you give me this back. Like that's not what apologies are, right? They are a gift. And so we should be prepared as much as we don't desire it. We should be be prepared to not be forgiven even though we offer an apology. Apologies are good within themselves because of what they strive to do, validate wrongdoing, and, and commit to not doing it again. That's, that's it. And I think that lessens the pressure and the coercion for victims victim to, to forgive as a result. I, I, we've been talking a lot about interpersonal
1: relationships and, and what forgiveness looks like there. But when we talk about a workplace or the criminal justice system, how can we apply this more expansive thinking to forgiveness
2: to the institutions and systems we all exist within? Forgiveness is not a way for us to put things under the rug, right? And it goes back to this notion of thinking that only victims have a role to play when it comes when it comes to forgiveness. And so, I, I do spend some chapters talking about talking about the workplace um, and you know institutional stuff. So, let me talk about the workplace. I want to say forgiveness doesn't have a place in the workplace, but let me let me just say this: I I, I am worried about forgiveness. This this kind of moral tool typically interpersonal to being used, or at least language and culture around forgiveness and, and the workplace. Listen, we, we go to work to do a job. Um, we have certain kind of requirements in order to allow that job to be done in relationship to how we interact with other people. And so we ought to respect people. We ought to, to, to cooperate. And, of course, people are going to mess up. When they mess up, when they make mistakes, when they engage in wrongdoing, the person needs to be held accountable. Um, And if there's a way to repair that kind of work, I think that that should be done. But that's not just going to require an employee just to forgive another another person. Sometimes some people need to be fired. (laughs) Sometimes people need to be made an example of. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about, about forgiveness being used as a way to kind of uh, heal from any kind of wrongdoing in the workplace so that workers can go back to being productive. I mean, this has to, have to do with like the marketing and the industrialization of forgiveness as a way to kind of contribute to workers' well-being so that profit can be, can, profit can be made. I think we need to really address true conflict. And 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 if we really want people to do their jobs, then I'm, I'm afraid that forgiveness is not going to not going to allow us to kind of do all the work that needs to be done, particularly when there are uh, unlawful, <laughs> unjust um, and suspect uh, behavior going on in the workplace. I mean, we need to address it. And forgiveness should not be <laughs> inspired in the workplace. I mean, that's just I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I, I, I feel like it doesn't really have a place mm. Um, And it's not to say that employees ought not to forgive, but let me be a little bit more precise. I'm worried that I don't want a boss to tell an employee to forgive. I mean, to forgive. That is a lawsuit waiting to happen. What they can tell them is to respect, cooperate, but not, no, not, not forgive. I
1: feel like we've just scratched the surface and we are out of time. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I've been talking with philosopher and professor, Maisha Cherry. She's the author of Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do Better. She's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. And you can hear more from Professor Cherry on her monthly philosophy podcast, Unmute. Professor Cherry, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast.